Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find it on page 1007 in the Black Pew Bible. And you may wish, if you want to keep a finger there, to turn to Genesis chapter 4 at the very beginning of the Bible. As we're going to tonight, uh, from Hebrews 4, consider the faith of Abel the son of Adam and Eve, and the first of many Old Testament believers uh, brought before us in this chapter, whose faith Christians share. If you are a believer in Jesus, Abel is in your family tree. And uh, over the course of our study of Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see that these believers of Hebrews chapter 11 did many good works. We're going to hear uh, about a lot of their good works. And faith is shown by what I do. If you believe in God, you act on it. But this chapter should not be taken as a command to us to do the works of these believers. Why do I say that? Well, it's not saying Noah built an ark, verse 7, go and do likewise. Or Rahab gave friendly welcome to spies, verse 31. You should do that too. Or end of verse 34, by faith, some became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. This is not a general command that we all just go out and do all the things that they did. And so, verse 4 is not calling us to sacrifice animals from the firstborn of our flock like Abel did. We're going to read that in just a moment. He did that. But we are called to the same faith. Not foxhole religion. Not suddenly calling on God out of atheism atheism because we're in a tight spot. We don't know where else to go. And then, then if God sees us through dropping that faith in him as soon as the crisis is over. We're not called to temporary faith until God gets us out of a jam. We're called to abiding, saving faith, as all of these in Hebrews 11 had. We are called to trust in God for salvation through Jesus in response to his promises and to continue to trust in him to the very end of our lives. What do we learn about saving faith here from Abel? Well, let me invite you to hear the word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. This is the word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous god commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks this is the word of god let's look to the lord together for help in prayer father we ask that your word would enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of christ that it would make wise the simple, give joy to the heart, be a blessing to our soul. 
and grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What do we learn about saving faith from Abel? Three things I want to highlight with you. Saving faith in the first clause given. Saving faith comes to God through blood sacrifice. Abel offered a better sacrifice. We'll look at that from Genesis 4. Secondly, saving faith receives from God his pronouncement of righteousness. God commended him as righteous. And finally, saving faith speaks on beyond the grave. Though he died, yet he still speaks. So I want, I want to think about those three things with you tonight. In the first place, uh, go back to verse 4 in the very first clause where we learn that saving faith approaches God through blood sacrifice. By faith, it says, Abel offered to God. A more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, what he's done is he's picked up one of the very early stories of the Bible about the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And if you want to turn there to Genesis 4, you may do so, or you may just listen in uh, as I I read a portion of that. I want to get this story fixed in your mind, beginning at verse 2. Now, Abel, this is Genesis 4, verse 2, Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the, first, of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain offered the fruit of the ground, and he was a worker of the ground. Abel offered the fruit of the flock, and he was a shepherd. Cain brought produce. Abel brought an animal. Why an animal? Is it simply because of their vocation, or is there some other reason? Did, and here you'll hear different arguments, did Abel somehow understand that his offering should somehow be tied to God's provision given in Genesis 3 in the garden to Adam and Eve after their sin, his provision of animal skins to clothe his people at the cost of a sacrifice. Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, and it wasn't adequate. And God actually instituted the first physical death in slaying the animal to clothe them with skins. Did he somehow connect that death Uh, to his own offering or did the flaming swords of the angels in front of the entrance to the garden of eden keeping all back upon the upon the pain of death did he somehow understand that that warning uh, meant the only way to return to god was the way of death and he offered a substitute in death or Did he somehow tie his own offering to the promise given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15? The very first promise of of the gospel that one was coming, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of the enemy, but whose heel would itself be bruised. He would be struck 
And so uh, rede- uh, redemption would come to fallen humanity through him. Did he somehow connect that to the, to the striking or bruising of, of the animal? Or was there some other revelation given to him or to Adam and Eve that the Bible simply doesn't record that made it clear that, that when they came to approach God in worship and meet with him, they should come by the sacrifice of an animal. We don't know. The Bible isn't explicit about how Abel knew to offer this animal sacrifice. But the Bible is explicit in Hebrews 11 verse 4 in a way that Genesis doesn't even tell you that it was by faith that he offered this animal sacrifice. Cain By contrast, it says, did not do well. He did not come in faith. He did not offer what God wanted offered. It seems as though what Cain did is he said, here's what I owe you from creation because you're my creator. And Abel said, here's what I need for my redemption because I want you to be my redeemer. Cain says, I think I come to you through offering what I labored for. And Abel says, I come to you through the death of this sacrifice. Cain's way is the way of destruction. But understand that in the story of Cain's rebellion, God deals very kindly and fatherly with him. He asks Cain a series of progressive questions that are meant to draw Cain out. Really an invitation to repentance. If you look at uh, Genesis 4, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, this is after Cain killed Abel, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God is drawing him out, inviting him to confess his sin, but Cain chooses destruction. As another put it in Genesis 3, Satan has to talk Adam and Eve into sin. And in Genesis 4, God can't talk Cain out of sin. Cain won't listen to him. His heart is hard. Now, why is Abel's offering accepted and Cain's is not? There's got to be an explanation of some kind. God isn't arbitrary. He didn't play any, meeny, miny, moe. Which should I pick? Well, what was Cain's sin? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? What's that getting at? Well, when the Lord told Cain to do well, It could very well be that he he was saying, bring the kind of sacrifice that you know I've commanded you to bring. But he didn't do that. He didn't do what was right. He deliberately did what was wrong. 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 tells us we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. Cain's deeds here, even in his offering, were evil. Why, or how did Abel offer his sacrifice? By faith. Faith was his response to God's 
revelation. And so Cain disobeyed the revelation and Abel obeyed, and they did that by faith. Now, why did God want them to come through animal sacrifices? Why make it that and not something else? Well, you recall in Genesis chapter 2, God had told our first parents, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely what? You will surely die. Disobey me and die. Rebel against me and die. The penalty for sin is death. And now the offering for sin is itself a death. As we've learned in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, chapter 9 verse 22, there is no forgiveness of sins. The entire structure of Israelite worship with the temple and the priest and the sacrifices reminds you that an offering for sin is an offering in death. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves and tried to cover themselves and it was inadequate to cover their shame and their guilt. And in Genesis chapter 4, the sacrifice of an animal was the proper sacrifice for sins. Just as the the skins of the animal were a proper covering for themselves. And so as another pastor put it, in Abel's sacrifice, the way of the cross was prefigured. The first sacrifice by sinners was Abel's lamb, one lamb for one person. Later came the Passover, one lamb for one family. Then came the Day of Atonement with one lamb for one nation. And finally, Good Friday, one lamb for the sins of the whole world. And so what was Abel doing? He was in faith fixing his eyes on Jesus, whom he had not yet seen, whose name Jesus he did not yet know, but whose work he needed. John chapter 8, we read it. Jesus says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And what we need is an offering for our sins in substitution for our death. But Cain won't admit his need. He won't admit that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for him. He doesn't want a religion like that. He wants to bring the fruit of his own efforts. He wants to approach God based on his own ideas. And he is upset when he is not accepted. He's thinking this ought to be good enough. And so he is guilty of proud self-righteousness. Now to be sure, the text in Genesis clearly indicates that Abel offered the first fruits of the flock, it seems to indicate that that he had really put himself in it, that he had set apart the best, the the first portion, that that his heart was sincere and genuine in his offering. I don't know that it's criticizing Abel for what he offered in that regard, but we know that Abel's or that Cain's heart was not sincere. His heart was hard. But don't misunderstand the fact that Abel's heart was in it was not the righteousness that he needed. The very offering itself is his sincere confession that it is not his own righteousness that he needs, but he needs that of another through the shed blood of a substitute. 
He's not looking at himself. He's looking away from himself as he comes to God. He's looking to God's provision. He isn't proud and self-righteous like Cain. He comes to God and he says, death is what I deserve. Forgive me. And Hebrews is saying to us, we should imitate the faith of Abel who sacrificed an animal, looking to the Lord who takes away sin by the sacrifice of another. And uh, history shows that the division of the world is a division into Cain's and Abel's. That you are either a Cain or an Abel in the way that you approach and relate to the Lord. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 that shows that just as well. It's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember, he, in Luke 18, he talks about two men who went up to the temple to pray. Both are religious. They've gone up to the presence of the Lord to pray. Both are trying to come to God. But Cain is like the Pharisee in that story who trusts in himself that he is righteous. As Jesus said about the Pharisee, the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you. That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the religion of people who think, I've been good enough for God, and God should be satisfied with me. I don't steal, you may be saying to yourself. I haven't committed murder You might be saying to yourself, I haven't cheated on myself. And you think you're offering to God what God expects of you. You're adequate, you think. Or you may be saying to yourself, I go to church. I'm sitting here today, aren't I? I read the Bible. I've prayed some prayers. I've been baptized where I take communion. I've done what God expects. I've jumped through the hoops that God requires. I am righteous before God. Of course, he'll take me to heaven. But the people God accepts are the people who say with the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray but stood far off and Jesus says would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God have mercy or be merciful to me. A sinner, he knows that what he deserves is justice and death for his sins. But he's at a temple where the blood of sacrifice is pouring out off the altar and onto the floor. And he's saying to God, forgive me. Let those sacrifices be for me. Be atoned towards me. Be propitious towards me. Jesus says in that story of Luke chapter 18 verse 14, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So Cain says, this is good enough. God should be glad for it. I've done my duty. Abel says, I'm not worthy. Have mercy upon me. And so let me ask you this question for you. If if you were to die tonight and to appear before God in heaven, and God in heaven, if he should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? If your answer is, I worked really hard for you. I did my duty. I tried to be a good person. I was better than some of those others. I I went to church. I've been baptized. Those answers 
will take you straight to hell. Because your trust is in yourself. The correct answer is because Christ died for me and my only hope is Him. I deserve what happened to Him. Let His sacrifice be enough for me. Have mercy on me, Lord, for His sake. That's my hope. He's my hope. And so Abel teaches us that saving faith comes to God through God's appointed blood sacrifice, all of which culminated in Jesus. Secondly, what was the result of that? He was declared righteous. Look at this in, back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Through faith, he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Saving faith brought God's pronouncement of his righteousness. Faith in God's ordained sacrifice obtains his testimony that the sinner is righteous. It wasn't his own actions that made him righteous. They obtained the testimony that he was righteous. That is to say his actions did prove his faith. His faith was in the sacrifice. And God says, you're right with me. He wasn't declared righteous on account of jumping through hoops or his own good works, but on account of the work of the promised seed of the woman of Genesis 3 verse 15, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would be bruised on the cross, who was prefigured in the sacrifice of the lambs, whom Abel by faith trusted in whom he had not yet seen. He believed the promises and God accounted him as righteous because Jesus is ultimately all our righteousness. First John chapter 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Why is that good? Because of who it is. Who is He? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The only righteous one. We read in John 8, Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. I always please my Father. Not one of us can say that. But He's righteous. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast is that Jesus is all our righteousness. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not that you shape up and then God justifies you because you've become righteous and godly. And so God says, I declare you to be what you are. It's that God justifies the ungodly because your faith is in Jesus who is your righteousness. And you're right in him. Theologically, in a, in, a, in a nice brief paragraph, the Westminster Larger Catechism, if you want to ask me about that, what it is, I'll tell you afterwards. Ask the question, and it's on the bulletin guide to worship on the back side. Uh, you might want to look there. Just listen in. What is justifying faith, it asks? Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner 
by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery, and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of his sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Warren Wearsby gives an illustration of this from a story about uh, Rolls-Royce automobiles. Rolls-Royce is famous, if you don't know that name, for its, uh, its luxurious uh, automobiles, its reputation for craftsmanship, its for some who are into such status symbols, the ultimate symbol of wealth and prestige and elegance. Well, the story is, uh, it seems that there was a man in England who put his Rolls Royce on a boat and went across to the continent of Europe to go on a holiday. And while he was driving around Europe, something happened to the motor of his car. He cabled, this is an old story, cabled the Rolls-Royce people back in England and asked, I'm having trouble with my car, what do you suggest I do? Well, the Rolls-Royce people flew a mechanic over to the continent. He repaired the car, flew back to England, and left the man to continue his holiday. And as you can imagine, the fellow was wondering, how much is that going to cost me? So when he got back to England, he wrote the people a letter, having not heard from them, and asked how much he owed, and he received a letter from the office that read, Dear Sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. <laughs> That's justification. By faith in Jesus, the record of what's wrong with us is accounted to him. We bear it no more. There is no record anywhere in God's files on us that anything ever went wrong for which we are to be condemned. We're accounted righteous in the righteous one. Then his work is perfect. And perfectly applied to us. Saving faith in the sacrifice of Jesus brings God's pronouncement of that righteousness. What effect does that have on you if that seeps down into your heart? Let me suggest four or five things and and built on the story of Cain and Abel. What effect does it have? Well, number one, if somebody points out your sin, you don't have to get defensive. You don't have to hide your sin from God or your spouse like Adam and Eve hid from each other and from God in the garden. You don't have to shift the blame for your sin to that other person whose fault it really is because it really can't possibly be yours. And you don't have to try to cover up your shame with fig leaves which are inadequate. But if it is deep in your heart that Jesus is all your right standing with God. You can begin to be honest about your own personal unrighteousness. And you don't lose anything by doing so. It's not a threat to your standing with God. You don't gain anything by pretending otherwise. 
But the proud can't be honest about their sin. Not having a Savior, it's always a threat. They can't be taken down a notch by being shown what they are because they have no security before God that He accepts them as if they were better than they are. So you've got to be as, as good as you can get, and it's always a threat. And Cain, after he killed Abel, verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's lying. He knows exactly where. And he's saying, I don't give a rip. Am I supposed to? And the Lord confronted him and Cain denied and, and not being justified, he couldn't bear to admit it. And then he goes on. How does this shape you? He goes on to think his punishment is too harsh. Genesis 4. My punishment is too great to bear, he says to the Lord. After the Lord tells him what's going to happen. Now, Cain was not struck immediately dead for his sin. He didn't immediately get death for sin, which is the wage of sin. But God was patient with him. But he says, this is too much. This is too hard. Unlike Abel, unlike the tax collector, who knew death for their sins was exactly what they deserved. And anything less was grace. But Cain thought he was getting a raw end of the deal. I don't deserve this. Do you see how proud he is? And, and then do you see, you see why this shaped his relationship with Abel? He was jealous. He was envious. He was angry. The Lord accepted Abel's offering. And accounted him as righteous. And Cain he did not accept. And Cain was mad at God. Jealous of Abel. Envious of God's blessing on his brother. And instead of humbling himself like Abel. He nurtured that anger. Until it grew to bitterness. Until it grew to murder. And he said let's go out in the field brother. And he killed him. He wouldn't let it go. He couldn't let it go. He couldn't let God's blessing on his brother go. Because he hadn't received the resources of God's gracious generosity in the gift of God's favor to himself. So he couldn't be happy with the gift of God's gracious generosity to another. But to those who are declared righteous with God and it's seeping into your bones in the way that you know it, then you know that everything you have is a gift from God. And like the angels in heaven, you can rejoice when a prodigal brother returns home and is met by the open arms of a father, lavished by the father's feast. It's no loss to you. It's a gain to the kingdom. And it's a joy. To see the Lord bless others. These are some of the ways justification can shape our hearts. But finally, we learn one last thing about saving faith. And that's at the very last clause of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4. It says, and through this, though he died, he still speaks. And how, of course, did Abel die? Cain took him out and murdered him. And then you see the irony there. One declared just by God is treated unjustly by his brother. 
Now you can imagine that fit well the anxious fears of the first Jewish Christians hearing this story who themselves have Pharisees and Cain's threatening them with social ostracism or uh, family banishment. Some had lost possessions. Others had been imprisoned. Many who've believed in Jesus have died. Abel believed in God and salvation and it got him killed. So much then for the theology that says if you just will believe in Jesus, everything will go well for you and you ought to expect it And you ought to think that God plans it for you in this life. Believe in Jesus and sometimes people will hate you. And sometimes your closest family wants if they don't do it. At least in our culture. Though in others it happens. They kill you. Though he died it says... Yet he still speaks. How does he speak? I think, I think two ways to look at that. One, the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood was spilled unjustly and his blood cries out for justice. Perhaps just like the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. Of which Abel may very well be the first martyr among that throng that Revelation is thinking of. When it says, as John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long? Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then it says a white robe was given them and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. His own blood cries out from the earth for justice. The martyrs ask, how long, O Lord? And yet... His own voice and his own sacrifice, his own faith in the Lord is recorded for posterity and still speaks. And what does it cry out? It cries out, Lord, have mercy upon me through the shed blood of the other. It cries out mercy. He still preaches. There is the blood of a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. By faith in him, God commends you as righteous. So let me ask you, what will your faith preach from your grave? Will anyone who knew you standing at your burial service hear the just shall live by faith? Will they hear... It's said of you that you said of yourself, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Or will your legacy be what a great name you made for yourself? Let's let it be that your only boast was to boast in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, 
You are a great Savior, merciful, kind, loving, who took flesh, died the death that we deserve to free us from our sins and reunite us to the Father and to shower us with your love and the hope of everlasting life. Grant that our faith, like Abel's, would be in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.